0: Hello, you're listening to Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number four from the British Society of Dowsers. I'm Graham Gardner. Our interview today features one of the most renowned writers on the dowsing scene, whose many books have become essential reference works for any student of dowsing. Back in the late 1970s, his book Needles of Stone splashed onto the burgeoning New Age scene like a boulder cast into a still pond, sending out ripples that transformed the public awareness of dowsing and introduced a whole new generation of enthusiasts to the art. The book combined dowsing and the then new field of earth mysteries and introduced such concepts as using standing stones as a form of earth acupuncture for weather control. Well, the ever-expanding ripples from that stone are still resonating with us today, although not always in a beneficial way, as we shall hear a bit later. But the revolutionary effect of the book cannot be underestimated. The author is, of course, Tom Graves, and in fact it was Needles of Stone that got me interested in dowsing, causing me to mutilate a pair of perfectly functional coat hangers to make my first pair of L-rods and go out and prove to myself that I could find underground water. In the 1980s, Tom emigrated to Australia and spent the next 20 years or so earning a living as a business and systems analyst, skills trainer and technical writer. But he's now back in the UK, and so it was with great pleasure that I managed to catch up with him at the BSD's 2007 conference. Tom was there as guest speaker, and was also teaching workshops on the use of the classical seven-circuit labyrinth as a metaphor for the skills learning process, detailing the seven stages that we go through when acquiring any new skill. It's a useful model that he's used successfully in business training seminars, and we'll hear more about it from Tom later in the interview. But first, I asked him how the dowsing scene has changed in the last 30 years since Needles of Stone was first published. So, Tom, thanks for talking to us. Well, thank
1: you very much indeed. Yeah.
0: So um, let's just start by talking about um, where, where your dowsing has gone, because obviously you were heavily into it back then. Well, I withdrew
1: from it from, to quite an extent. I got a little involved with some of the d- dowsing society in Victoria, but I was very disillusioned with the way it was going, particularly with uh, some groups who were raising energies from fountains and believing that they were healing the world by doing so. And they were doing stuff like, um, frankly, mucking about in Aboriginal burial sites that they should not even have been in, let alone doing that kind of work. So I, frankly, left in disgust. And my focus with dowsing anyway has always been on... is much more about the learning of the skill and how skills work in general. What we can learn from dowsing, the way we learn dowsing, can apply to any other skill, whether it be learning to drive a car, to play a guitar, to a lot of the field I work in, which is in the IT space. I've been making my living there for the last 20 years. The same sort of principles apply. So that, with the first book I did on dowsing, which came out in 76, that was nowadays called The Diviner's Handbook, I went to a lot of trouble looking at the language that was being used. I remember the Dowsing Society at the time, they were very upset with the first sentence, which was, anyone can douse. <laughs> it was regarded as being, you know, you special and different and only people with the gift could do it. So I was pretty unpopular with some people at that time about saying, well really anyone can, whether they may or will are two other questions, but anyone can, they can do it in their own way, because what it's about is the development of judgment and awareness. And I also got a bit disillusioned by a lot of what I would call unkindly the New Age end of new age, the kind of rubbish end, who were talking about raising cones and py- pyramids and all these earth energies with nothing that was grounded or practical at all. So I'm very, being at this conference now, I'm very heartened to see things like the, um, the village water group, whose focus is on finding wells in Africa, doing really concrete, practical stuff.
0: It's it's real back-to-basics work, isn't it?
1: And, on, for example, the archaeological dowsers aren't just doing wishy-washy earth energies. They're also doing what can we actually find using dowsing as a non-invasive technique for pre-excavation research. So there's some really practical, grounded stuff, as well as the healers. Um, My own focus is, particularly what I'm talking about here, is the, the role of theory in dowsing and people go, huh? But what I'm saying is that if we're looking at... Uh, we're always using a theory of some kind or another, because Tao seems very much about finding... finding some way of marking something which to us seem, seems relevant. The way we identify whether something is relevant or not is by choosing a theory, an expectation, a belief. What I'm saying here is we choose different beliefs in order to do different things. and. As opposed to the usual idea, where a belief is something that is fixed, I believe this for the rest of my life. Well, in a lot of this kind of work, we believe one thing and then believe something else, completely different, in the same way that as a designer of, say, a light bulb, we believe light is, is particles to get it off the wire in the old tungsten bulb. We then say, well, light is waves, so it gets through the light. It gets through the glass. But it's now particles, and so we keep on mm. shifting our belief according to what we're trying to do. That's a big difference between a technology and a science, mm. is we change beliefs.
0: One of my favourite quotes by uh, the late Robert Anton Wilson, who just died the mm. other year, is, uh, belief is the death of intelligence.
1: Well, in a sense, if, if it's a fixed belief, but here it's about choosing a belief, knowing that we're choosing it, committing to it as if it's absolutely true but keeping one corner of the mind off to one side, being able to say okay now time to change the belief, to do something different and that's how any good technology any technology design, it's actually how science itself works properly the actual process of science as opposed to the religion of it, which we suffer off a lot so I'm really gratified, pleased to see the way the society is going now there's this much more grounded sense when I first got involved, I mean I was what, 22 when I was first involved, and uh, people said you can't possibly be a dowser because you're less than 60 years old. <laughs> and it was very much a military club, a kind of, a very much a separation between the officers who were telling people what to do and the artisans who were, you know, the few country dowsers who were actually involved, were very much treated as the junior, you know, they might be considered, might be at best an, an NCO, but really they were just a private, you know, the person who was told what to do. It was a very class structured system. Like we were just saying, people used to dress for dinner. Yeah. These are sort of bizarre concepts now, but they were the norm of the time. And likewise, the idea of gifted, only gifted people can do it. I've been hearing people saying, well, you know, anyone can dance. Well, everyone knows that. They certainly didn't 30 years ago. Yeah. So in that sense, I've had a, had a real impact and I'm really glad about that. I've done something useful. But I've been through a long period of doldrums and it's I'm not really sure where it's taking me now. Yeah, I don't have the same kind of obsession that I had in the early days about. Yeah. I spent a couple of weeks at Rollwright living in an old Land Rover, doing research work at the at the stones. And the Dragon project actually came out of that, which was really nice. Yeah, Paul Devereux and the whole group. I knew Paul Devereux very well from where I was living in London. We were very almost neighbours.
0: You taught him to those, I believe, didn't you? Uh,
1: that's possible. I think possibly he taught me. I mean, <laughs> oh, the person I really learned from was the wonderful old, old um, Laurel and Hardy pair of John Williams and Bill Lewis over in Um Bill Lewis was this very dry, very wry, thin, wiry ex-engineer who really knew his stuff and was really one of the quiet greats of the, the um, dowsing scene and John Williams who was this over-enthusiastic country lawyer I loved that guy really wonderful but I think Bill was a bit unkind sometimes because he really did use him as his straight man for a comedy act but neither of them were members I think Bill may have been a member of society but John wasn't it was just hmm. we actually got in touch with them through the architectural association I was then at art college in Hornsey College of Art and did my follow-on work at the Royal College um, but the Architectural Association, Keith Critchlow, was one of the main drivers. I mean, Keith mm. is a, a very important person. He's the only Westerner who's been desi- asked to design a mosque in Mecca. Yeah. He's a very important person from the whole area of sacred geometry and, that kind of, and spiritual energies and that kind of space. As a real, concrete, practical architect with that kind of grounding. So that was the connection there. Um, I've just been remembering, because I was digging up some stuff from my attic, and I've got some mm-hmm. photographs of John Williams and the interviews I did with John and Bill. Mm. This is I mean, 33 years ago now. 30, no, it'd be 35 years ago. It's kind of frightening. Yeah. yeah. Years catch us up.
0: Tell us a bit about your uh, Weirdsmiths work. Is that still... A nice Somewhat. It was,
1: yeah. The idea was... It was actually a commission from one of my publishers. They wanted a book for the self-development market that didn't insult the intelligence. So I took the old idea for the weird, which is... The Nordic version of fate. The big tr- big difference is that in the Greek idea, life is very fixed, it's predestined or fatalistic. <laughs> and the f- there are the three sisters of, of fate, one spins, one weaves, one cuts. They weave a fabric of lives, your life is just one thread. The threads are vaguely held together by a warp of chance, but we don't really look at that. It's just, here is a life, clunk, that's it. The Nordic version, it's the three sisters of weird. That's, that weird is actually a name, so weird is strictly speaking a noun, not an adjective. It's more correctly pronounced are U-R-F-R, with where the F is that hard th. So that instead of being a fabric of of lives, it's a fabric of life. There is only one thread, but it weaves and twists through itself like a Celtic knotwork. So there's always a choice, but there's always a twist. Mm. So one way of understanding it, if you're familiar with the Greek mythology, is to merge the idea of the the fates with the idea of pan. Because pan is literally the everything. And when we're facing a choice, there's a choice, there is that moment of panic because everything and nothing is true at the same time. As soon as we move off that choice point, then things are stable again. But in that moment of weirdness, everything is possible. And a lot of the work I've done over the years, a lot of the work I've done with dowsers is literally tricking people into dowsing. I can't do it. I can't do it. There's no way I can do it. Have you noticed you've just done it? Oh, oh, so I have. Well, I can carry on doing it then, can't I? (laughs) It's tricking people into being powerful. We have to get them over this hump so they can look back.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: One thing I talked a bit about there was what I called the silliness barrier. I would feel silly if I look back at myself for being unable to do it therefore I can't face it so I won't get over the barrier. Yeah. And it, that's as true in any skill as it is in dowsing. So uh, another one that came out of that was um, some work I did on the labyrinth talking about that there is this moment in walking, if we use the, the labyrinth as a kind of analogy of, of the skills learning process, there is this ghastly moment where we're actually further out, not only than where we started, but we're further out than anyone it's what I sometimes call the osodit oh point, of like giving up, that like everything's complete failure. And uh, I was doing some work with some uh, research, an engineering research establishment, and they said this was the most valuable thing they got out of it, was that to understand that this moment of absolute despair and feeling of complete failure is in fact a normal part of the learning process. So as a dowser, if you're coming across something and I, and I feel, I can't possibly do this I'm, I'm useless, I'm no good this is actually a normal part of the process just keep going
0: mm. The labyrinth is a very interesting metaphor to use for that yeah. actually, uh, and I did enjoy that workshop earlier but, yeah. uh, did We that. did
1: a workshop just now just uh, using yeah. the idea of the, the traditional seven turn labyrinth and saying that the each of the turns each of the layers is like the seven chakras in the classic system so the idea of of it being survival, self, control, caring, communication, mind, meditation, and the center of mastery. So it's seven plus, seven plus the octave, effectively. Now, the uh, American society, they do some very good work with sort of energy type stuff around that. That's not really my forte. All I'm talking about here is just using it as an analogy of the learning process. Because what happens is, we, from the outside we go in we go straight away to beginner's luck, we get to almost to the centre. And if we've, it's, we succeed because we don't know what we're doing. It's not a linear process, it's not step one, step two, step three. But in fact we jump in, straight into taking control. From there we get worse as we start to have to engage ourselves and get into the long, long process of practice. But we won't get anywhere unless we do that practice. And the end point of that practice is that moment of despair the way through that despair is to be committed to the press, to the skill in itself, for itself. Not for us, not for anything else, but just for the skill itself. That's when we break through into a place where we never lose it. But there's a real choice point about, do we just give up? And it's very easy just to give up at that point. A lot of people do. That's where this partly this illusion of the gift comes from. Another one, you, you were talking earlier about the gift, you know, only certain people are gifted dowsers. Well, I would often more accurately describe it as a curse (laughs) than a gift. I'm probably close to a natural dowser in a sense, which is why I actually can't do much of it. I have to be quite careful not to, because it's like being hit by a cattle prod. Mm. I tend to jump quite strongly, and I do that even if there are people around. So simply for self-protection, I just withdraw. So I've always stayed a beginner, which sometimes is useful.
0: Yeah. More you have that um, innocent attitude of mind, which I think uh, comes I'm in very handy. I'm not entirely handy. sure about innocent. Well. In, suitably <laughs> insane is probably closer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've also often mm. been used as the kind of comedy act of the, of the Earth mystery scene or the energy scene, because mm. it is so important that when things are so difficult as mm. this material is, the safest way to deal with it is with humour. And if we think of um, the Sufi tradition, the, the Nazirudian tales, mm. my favourite Nazirudian tale is also the shortest. Muller, why do you always answer a question with another question? Do I? <laughs> <laughs> it's these very, very simple. You do use humour to get through, get over the silliness barrier yeah. and come at it from the other side. So I do a lot of work which is very much about humour. And I noticed, for example, John Moss and the other crew here, there is a very strong sense in humour now. Whereas yeah. Before, 30 years ago, it was, I love them dearly, and they were terribly serious. This lightening of it—it's yeah. a lot of difference.
0: There has been a huge paradigm shift in the society, in the, mm. just in the last ten years, I think. That's great. Yeah, which is it, great. It
1: really does feel very different from where it was.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, if it's okay with you, I'll uh, put some documentation up on the website about your labyrinth. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Metaphor there, yeah. so that people—well, there's a, can there's a single
1: that. sheet which you're perfectly welcome to have. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that people can look at that as they're yeah. listening to this, it will uh, help uh, explain things. Yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to share with us?
1: It's a bright, sunny day. It's a real rarity in England mm. to have a bright, sunny day on the summer.
0: <laughs> Shall we go and get a drink? Yes, right. let's do that. Okay, Thank you very much indeed. Our thanks to Tom for taking the time to talk to us there. Now, as I mentioned during the interview, there's a picture of Tom's labyrinth model available in the show notes for this podcast. This model is also discussed in Tom's latest book, published 2008, called The Disciplines of Dowsing, which is aimed at providing a structured working model that is so often absent from dowsing research. I mean, for many people, dowsing is about spending an afternoon outdoors, often with one or two friends, followed by an hour or two in the pub. Any notes that are taken are usually hastily scribbled down on a piece of paper and soon forgotten about. And this is absolutely fine for most people, of course, but if if you plan to be serious about your dowsing work, then you should definitely read Tom's book which offers a very structured paradigm for the intermediate to advanced dowser, much of it drawn, of course, from Tom's years of experience in business and systems analysis and training. You can buy the book from the BSD shop, or through Tom's website at tetradianbooks.com, where there is a sample ebook download available. Tom's blog can be found at weblog.tomgraves.org. I'll put links to both of those sites in the show notes. Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers in Malvern, England. For more details about dowsing and the Society's activities, please see our website and online shop at BritishDowsers.org. You can also register and leave messages on our forum at britishdowsersorg forum. There's a special podcast section in there for all your questions relating to the show. Or email us directly on podcast at britishdowsers.org. That's all for this podcast. I hope you can join us next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.